Boaz is in the middle of the threshing season. He's in the middle of, he's already had people gleaning his field. Like he's doing a lot of good. He's doing a lot of action. Like what is his capacity to be interrupted and surprised and respond? He does better than I do. Or I would do, I think, where he's he like he's uncomfortable, but he wakes up really fast and he responds really fast. He sees the good, he moves towards it. He's willing to upend his life in a moment. Um, and I tend not to be. I I tend to say like, yeah, okay, let's plan that out for next year <laughs> or next month. Versus, it's the middle of the night and I see it right away and I'm going to respond right away. That's really hard. <laughs> Speaks well of Boaz. Hello and welcome to Searching the Sacred. This is Jason. And you are listening to part nine of our conversation on the book of Ruth. If you have not yet become a patron of this podcast, I invite you to do so by going to patreon.com, search Searching the Sacred, and become a patron, and you will get access to the discussion guides for each of these episodes. There's going to be a total of 12 episodes, 12 different conversations on the Book of Ruth. That's 12 different discussion guides. And so we invite you to join us and go along for the journey and add your voice to the conversation with another group of people. Here is part nine. And when he responds well, let's look at his words maybe in verses 10 and 11. He says a lot of good things in this surprise moment. He starts with, blessed are you of the living presence, my daughter. What does it mean to look at somebody and call them blessed? Right in this vulnerable moment in the middle of the night. I think it instantly takes away that fear of how's he going to respond to this you know it could be anger frustration could get ignored could get thrown out could get maybe even killed for this i mean who knows culturally what could happen based on i mean she's a moabite let's not forget like she's not exactly an israelite uh in this (laughs) here so like there's a lot of potential problems with what's happening and for him to say blessed are you by the living presence my daughter i mean that's family you know like relationship that's god is with you right the living presence our god is blessing you like i mean that's i mean you go from fear to safety in an instant with with what he's saying there And maybe actually the fact that you just named her being a Moabite makes me want to go back to verse nine because she looks at him and, and asks for him to cover her because he is her Gaal redeemer, kinsman redeemer. Um, So Gaal is redeemer. And we talked about that earlier with Leviticus 25, but Leviticus 25 is particularly about redeeming from a fellow Israelite. So for her as a Moabite to name him as a redeemer in this moment in time, like what is she claiming? I'm I'm an Israelite. Essentially. I'm one of you. 
So she's asking him not to just to see his role as redeemer. He's she's asking him to see her as a as a as a brethren, as a, as an Israelite, as one of his people, even though she's a Moabite. To look at the actions she's taken of coming with Naomi, of committing herself to Naomi, that she and Naomi have made this agreement to be a part of one another's family, even though it's through marriage. But now she's asking Boaz to see that too, to see her as someone who can be redeemed by him, as should be redeemed by him, to see her as a part of that family line to play that role. And so to what you, to the point you said earlier, like there's a lot of ways he could respond to that. He probably could look at her and say, you're a Moabite. No, I don't think that law applies to you. And my interpretation of this law would only apply if if Malon and, and Kilion had married an Israelite, they didn't. So I don't believe that you are redeemable. Probably there would be people who could have, you, you could make that case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't. He says she's blessed. I don't know if anybody should try to play the argument why they wouldn't be. What do you mean by that? It feels like that feels a little bit like hot potato. Like I don't want responsibility for this one. Like that we get a choice in like who. Like I, I would have a hard time believing that God wants it set up so that we have a choice in who is redeemable and who isn't. Okay. And does that prevent us from interpreting that way when it suits us? Right. Like whether or not God wants it that way is maybe a different question than whether humans could interpret it that way and still be considered righteous and just by their fellow religious people. So if Leviticus 25 doesn't explicitly say any human. Could a religious person say, oh, I think that law only applies if you marry inside the Israelites and do we see that trajectory in religious life where we find ways to interpret laws that say, I don't think God meant it that way. I mean, the simple answer to that is we do that all the time (laughs) throughout human history. We've applied different things all the time to marginalize people to keep power constantly. And and so, yeah, it, it very well could have been done here. And the story that's being told is that it shouldn't be done mm-hmm. to Lisa's point. Like that. I can't imagine God would want to discriminate like that. No, I can't imagine it either, except it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in other books of the Bible, you know, like Ezra and Nehemiah talking about the purity of the line of, of Israel being you know, paramount after exile is, you know, so important. And, and yet, I mean, it's like, well, why, you know, like, why is that, that so important, you know, like, um, and so racial and ethnic discrimination is real throughout the scriptures. And so for Boaz to overlook what could have been a very easy out potentially, um, is worth noting. 
And it's worth noting, especially when we're looking at this question of what is good in everyone's eyes, because we're going to see in chapter four, another person's response to her being a Moabite. And we're going to see whether that could have been used as an out and and that Boaz doesn't use that as an out, that he sees that God meant this for everyone. It speaks to Boaz's character. We see a lot of good in Boaz and Ruth and Naomi's character in this story because he, she claims it and he sees it and he doesn't look for an excuse to not be that redeemer to her because she's Moabite. She, he sees, and in fact, then in verse 10, uh, blessed are you of the living presence, my daughter. And now we have this word chesed again. You have shown more chesed now. So chesed, we t- we've talked about before because it comes up several times in this book that it's this, this living, active, loving, committed action towards what God wants humans to live like. And that Boaz names Ruth as being that. So we saw in chapter one that Naomi named Ruth as being that. And here in chapter three, in response to what Ruth does, Boaz looks at her and says, you are even more chesed than I knew. And then verse 11, he says to her, Eshet chayil, you're a woman of valor. Like he sees all of this goodness and potential in her. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that at that moment, like her decision and Naomi's decision for her to be there was one that is being received um, about as well as possible. (laughs) Have we talked about Boaz's name yet? No. So Boaz... There's a definition. I don't know where the definition of fleetness comes from. That's what my tool says. My tool also says an uncertain meaning. But besides here, the other place it's used is in First Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And it is the name of the pillars of the temple. So First Kings 7.21 talks about Solomon setting up the pillars. Um and naming these pillars of the porch of the temple. And so the name of one is Hakin, and the name of the left pillar is called Boaz. And so when we think about Boaz's actions here, to think of a pillar of the temple being named after him, and what is what does a pillar do? And what is he doing? Um, and how... Um, what do we then see about about what we would interpret that meaning to be? So I, I don't know. Maybe we talk about that for a second. What does a pillar do? Support something, hold something up. And how is Boaz like a pillar? Well, he's going to be providing support and, you know, holding them from collapse from a societal and, and and probably even physical standpoint. Um, I think it's interesting that the pillar is on the porch. So it's not like an interior support, it's an exterior support. Um, and if we're talking, like we've talked about um, like the gleaning and like Boaz does seem to inhabit a space of being outward focused. 
of being a symbol um, of a of a safe place to come in. Like people know they can glean. They know, like they know by seeing Boaz that he's a. They they understand him to be a. Seems to be a good boss. <laughs> it seems to like be good at what he does. He knows the people that work for him. He greets people. He makes sure that there's safety for Ruth. Even how he responds, he can see things like Hasid and give a blessing. And like, there's a particular way that Boaz is who you would like to have as a pillar, like an exterior pillar, like come on inside. It's safe. Hmm. So it kind of feels like it's like this owning of like what, like how Boaz does this. The way that Boaz lives actually creates a safety and community that we all, like all of us have the potential for that. Mm -hmm. That's good. And I don't know why that, this is making me think of the um, parable. It's the parable that we call the parable of the good Samaritan, but I, it's probably better to be called like the parable of the injured man. Um, But this idea that is being asked in the time of Jesus of who is my neighbor and this difference between following the letter of the law and the spirit of the law and, um, and that there's a way that people are wrestling with like, well, is that, is that person, is that group really my neighbor or not? Even though actually Leviticus 19 talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, but also loving your strain, the stranger as yourself, um, the outsider as yourself. Um, but what I'm thinking about here is like Boaz gets it. Boaz doesn't need a parable to Boaz doesn't need an explanation. He is just naturally this safe place for outsiders, this place that is welcoming and loving and respected and like this sort of example of the way that it's supposed to be, even though like there's a way that we don't need to hold him up idealistically because he's also not getting it 100% right all the time. Like it looks like in chapter two, he probably could have taken some actions he didn't take for whatever reason he didn't take them. So he's not perfect, but he's really good. He's really loving and he's really safe and he's really working to care for people and to follow God's law the best he can. And um, there's something about that that seems like it's just holding up this example of what that outer outer court is supposed to look like in the kingdom of God. I think there's something about like, adaptability and flexibility or um, willingness to be taught or to learn that Boaz is maybe an example of here that, cause you know, you mentioned he's not perfect and, it, and part of me is like, Oh yeah, he's not. And then a part of me is like, well, yeah, of course he's not like he's human. Like he's like any one of us, but the miraculous nature of Boaz is less that he's not perfect or that he should be but that he's actually willing to be confronted by a different story or a new narrative and change or to follow through on his better angels that he's already trying to do. You know, he's already trying to be this great, this kind landowner. He's already trying to, to practice this idea of gleaning and to help people feel a sense of, of care in doing so and, and going out of his way to make it possible. Like, Hey, don't, really make sure you you drop more, make sure you don't go to the edges. We really want to make sure that 
these people get what they need, you know? And, and at some level, if you're that kind of person, you could say, you know, I'm like 99% awesome. And if someone comes along and says, you know, you're not quite awesome enough, it, the tendency is to be like, are you kidding? Like, do you know everything that I do around here? Like, do you know what kind of person I am? And instead, his posture is, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out because I needed to see it. Like, he's actually able to accept that he has blind spots and then adapt and change as opposed to defending his own action and his own perfectness in his eyes. Um, and, and to me, that is, that's what it means to be human on like the best level is not to be perfect. That's ridiculous. But to be adaptable as you move towards, you know, in the Christianese of, you know, our time to move towards being Christ-like, um, you know, it's, it's that constant movement in, in relationship with the spirit where you are becoming more and more like Christ. And here Boaz is showing us, I think, a, a, a piece of that. Even in the middle of the night, even when he's surprised. Even he when can he's wake, distracted by all that he's got going on. He can wake up and he can see and he can move towards his role for wholeness and redemption and good and love. And what would it be like if more of us were like that? Where even if we're already doing good, we can wake up um, and not get defensive about, but don't you see what I already did? Uh, we can say, oh, no, I, I see what more I can still do. Shall we read the rest of the chapter? And now, though, in fact, I am redeeming kin. There is also a redeeming kin closer than I. Spend the night here, and it shall be in the morning. Should he redeem you, he will do well to redeem. And if he does not want to redeem you, I myself will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie here till morning. And she lay at his feet till morning and arose before a man could recognize his fellow man. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, give me that, give me the shawl that you have and hold it out. And she held it out and he measured out six shares of barley and he set it on her. She came into the town when she came to her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law said, how is it with you, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six shares of barley he gave me, for he said, you should not come empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she said, stay, my daughter, until you know how the matter will fall out, for the man will not rest if he does not settle the matter today. Okay, Steph, my question after hearing that is, is there something significant that we should be reading into the number six? Or is that just the amount of weight that she was able to carry, so that's what he gave her? Or both of the above. <laughs> um, I, that's. I think it's an interesting question. Oh, it's always interesting questions. I was caught up. I was actually not thinking about that because I was just caught up in the feels of like what it is to go home and wait after this encounter. Like I was just paused mm. there after Lisa read of like, that's, I feel like that's when I would feel the most vulnerable is, is, is in verse 18 of like going home and waiting to see if this guy you've never met 
don't know what he's like is going to be the one to choose to redeem you or whether this man that has proven himself as good and kind is going to come and do that role. Like that just, I was caught up in that feeling. So I wasn't thinking about the number six. (laughs) No, I think that's an important thing to acknowledge that. Yeah. There's such a, a vulnerability there that she's done all this work and yeah, it might not be, you know, it's interesting because she might, her and Naomi might get what they need either way. Right. They, they like, they might, they might find that redeemer, that kind of generationally altering situation. It just might not be with Boaz. And I think what's really powerful is that Boaz is committed to that. Even if it's not him, he's committed to finding that person for them. Yeah, maybe we can see that, like, maybe that feels vulnerable to Boaz as well. Like, maybe over after this time and seeing all of this chesed and Ruth and calling her a woman of valor, like, maybe he wants it to work. Maybe he's like, gosh, I want Ruth. Maybe it feels vulnerable to him to offer it up to somebody else, but he's still trying to do what is right and good. When I think about the number six and that, I think about, I mean, the place that the place the number six comes up first is in Genesis one. Um, as many things come up for the first time in Genesis one, <laughs> but what happens with the number six in Genesis one? Like what, what, what function does the number six play in Genesis one? I mean, it's the sixth day of creation. So we have, you know, the creation of humanity, animals. Yeah, it's the final, you know, it's not the final day of creation technically because of the rest, but it's okay. the last day of action. And then then there comes rest, which is what Naomi is and Ruth are now experiencing. Okay, exactly. That there's this there's this trajectory of in six days, you do all the work there is to do. And then you stop because it's time to stop. Um, and there's a way that on that stopping day and the stopping of human action and the stopping of God's creating, you're letting things flow their course. And so perhaps the six is reminding us of that, like Naomi and Ruth at this point have done all they can do. And, and maybe the six is just a nod to that of like, now it's time to stop and it's time to wait. And so maybe this is like reading into it too much, but when he gives her the six sheaths or six whatever parcels of barley, it comes before the dawn. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but they weren't using a midnight to noon to, they were a type of calendar. They were operating from like dawn until dusk. And so like the new day was the dawn, right? Not midnight. And so like the sixth barley are actually happening on the day in which she made her last efforts towards Boaz. And so then the next day she brings home those things and there's, that's technically like seven, right? Like that's the rest that Mm -hmm. comes next because it's now morning. Well, I think there's lots of room to play. So when we're thinking about something like, um, the, like numbers in scripture, it's worth maybe noting that 
that's a place where we're allowing ourselves to get really mystical at this, at that sort of layer of interpretation, which means there's lots of ways we're reading into the text. We're just conscious that we're doing it. So it is unlikely that Boaz was consciously giving her a measure of six in order to symbolize work and rest. It is unlikely that that level of consciousness was taking place in the story. What we're doing mystically is saying, but we still have the invitation to read the word six and wonder what God is inviting us to see through the way the story is being told. And the mystic allows there to be this sort of space for wondering that does read into the text because that's what mystical wonderings do and to not be so afraid of that. And so to say what you just said, that to say there's space for that when you're wondering about a number, because there's an invitation in those questions, what, what the sort of the only thing that becomes quote unquote dangerous about that, even though this is not even really dangerous is if we, is, if, is if we take it to the level of saying Boaz intended to give six measures in order to mean this, that's not what we're saying. We're saying, what does six remind me of? How is that message a part of the story? How might the Ruach spirit of God be speaking something to me through six and seven and work and rest? And how might interpreting that number help me see that? Um, I We don't have to then be as worried. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, like the, I like the wondering because I actually think it's what's interesting is then the verse 18 um like i was just looking at it a little bit closer but like to think about it like entering into the like you've done all you can it like she says like stay my daughter till you know how the matter will fall out but that's also like similar language to like be still and know Mm -hmm. um which is language that like as soon as i was like oh be still and know (laughs) like like it feels like language of like that's kind of like how we're supposed to enter into like relationship with the living presence. And so um, while this is contingent on Boaz doing Boaz's part, there is a way of like, it feels like confirmation of like, yeah, you've done everything you can. Mm-hmm. Now, now, now all that's left is to just be still and know, which is not easy, but also. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and there's, there is some Sabbath language in verse 18 as well, when she says, um, the man will not rest or be at peace until he has kalah finished or completed this work. That is the word used in Genesis 2, 1, that when the work kalah, or when, when it was completed kalah, God stopped. Um, and so there's a way of this, this energy of completing work and stopping and resting uh, being an invitation for us multiple times through scripture to say it is actually quite hard if you are Naomi and Ruth to do that right now. Um, to accept that invitation to say, I we have done all we can do, and now it is time to stop and wait. Um we're just not good at that as humans. And and I, I love the idea of and I know that like we're maybe reaching a little bit or spending time in a place that it's like, okay, it's just the number six. Don't worry about it so much. But like this wasn't written down to be historical, like to be, you know, and yesterday Boaz gave Ruth six parcels of barley and then she carried them home to Naomi. Like this is being written down way later on. It's being edited in in order to, to like help orient people towards 
who the people are in relationship to God. This is found in the wisdom tradition, not found in a historical narrative, not found in the Torah. I mean, it's very specific, a way of of trying to pass on um, understanding and and about who God is and, and who the people are. And so I, I love the idea of a, a group of editors that are telling the story of Ruth and Boaz and like the importance of it for who they are as a people and in the relationship with God. And they're like, you know, you know how many parcels of barley Boaz should give Ruth? It's actually six because she's done all the work and now they're resting. Like, I love that. I, I mean, it's kind of like when you're editing a, a, a poem or you're editing a song that you're writing. And you're trying to figure out like, how do I say, you know, you know, and it's, it's kind of, you're telling to tell a story of your, your romance or your, you know, your, your whatever. And you're like, you know, it was a Tuesday, but you know, what would be really cool is if it happened on a Saturday, you know, I don't know why, but you know, like you change the date a little bit, you change the season that it's in. Why? Because it actually tells the story in the way that is meant and felt as opposed to just logically or literally happened. It tells a better story or a deeper story or even a more true story. And so I like the idea of this being a more true story because the people thought, yeah, they rested. And we need to be reminded that that's how we flow. Um, just to highlight, when when we are in that mindset that you named of logic and literal, that is a modern Western mindset ancient Eastern mindset would not be concerned about logic and literal because it's pre-Greco-Roman world. Logic is really a part of the conversation once we get to Socrates and Plato, which is not until like 350 BC. Um, That's after this. Um, And it's a different cultural understanding. and, and, um, And some of our ways of telling stories where chronology is most important, like there's a way that they're not, it's not that they don't care about the truth, but the way you just said it of how might it even be a truer story to, t- to, to have it feel a certain way or invite us in a certain direction is valuing something other than logic as the primary. Well, and it feels especially like we're invited into it in that conversation because what we're not told, we're actually not told if it's a parcel. We don't know what, what unit a barley. We know that there's six barley. That's what the language says. It doesn't say like epa or like there's a lot of different language that they could use for how much barley it is. We don't actually, we just know it's six, which is, <laughs> which, which almost is feels super like random. highlight it. <laughs> like, yeah. It, I mean, it's one thing if you were to like give the exact measure because then you could extrapolate, oh, okay, he gave her enough to like live on for the next X amount of days. And that way they knew he was going to probably report back to them about the kinsman redeemer thing by that time, because they'd be hungry. You know, instead it's randomly thrown in there and left for us to go, Ooh, I wonder what that means, you know? <laughs> and we get to have this fun conversation about working hard and resting and there being, you know, nothing left for us to do. We have to trust and, and have faith and hope that, Things are actually working out. The living presence is showing up in this moment. The system at play in in place is actually a healthy system, and and it's going to work in favor of the marginalized and the oppressed. I mean, that seems to be what it's inviting me into, um, just by the number six, which is kind of fun. Well, and and we can say there, you know, sometimes 
Uh, we could get twitchy or panicky if we have been raised in a very literalistic biblical um, teaching mindset. We can get nervous when we hear maybe for the first time that things weren't written down until hundreds of years after they happened. Or when people start talking about source criticism and things being from multiple documents and then edited to be placed together. It can make us feel like that throws everything up for grabs. Nothing must be. How can I trust anything that's in front of me? And there's actually a way that this mystical interpretation allows us to hold that differently and say, instead of instead of not trusting that process, how might that be a part of us seeing a different kind of story being told, a different kind of invitation being given that is maybe giving us whole new things beyond what literal logical chronological storytelling would be giving us and how might how might the fact that we get thrown by that actually be showing our own biases um and 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 what if when if there's a different invitation there um towards i'm trying to remember how um so uh there's a there's a podcast called the bible for normal people that uh pete ends does and he talks about um and he does a book called Exodus for Normal People, where he talks uh, about um, like mythical history. That's not it. That's not the right phrasing of it. <laughs> um, where there's a way to come, where there's a way that myth doesn't mean not true um, in a way that we don't always allow space for in our modern Western reading of things. Um, that that's coming to mind right now when we're playing with the number six, like we don't have to get twitchy about that. We can allow there to be these sort of depths of storytelling that are here. Well, that, I mean, I feel like that comes to, we, we see that in particularly in the gospels, how they aren't in the same order. They're not telling the same stories. They don't use the same words and they actually change dates or when things happen because that's part of the story that they're telling. It doesn't mean that it's not a true story but it certainly is a particular lens that gets popped on. And I think it's like, I feel like it's the cautionary tale of if we're really getting hung up on that kind of detail, then perhaps we're missing the heart of the story. Like we're spending too much time in our head. We got to move to heart and like both can be true. Like sometimes we spend too much time in our heart and we take it into wild territory. and. Mm -hmm then we probably have to do a little bit of grounding work and like, it can be a way of like helping us guardrail, but also like, I was just thinking, I was like, Oh, spend a little bit of time now on a lot of like head stuff. So like, what's my heart? Like what heart stuff? If, if I think about all that we've talked about for chapter three, um, like what's my heart wrestle? Like what's the thing left on the table for me that, um, as a person who's not in the oppressed position, what can I learn from then? What can I learn from a, from a Boaz? Mm -hmm. And, and where can I learn then from a Ruth or a Naomi mm -hmm. in like my modern day sense of like, who's, who do I allow to call me out when I'm missing it? Mm. That's a great heart question. Hmm. Who do we allow ourselves to be called out by when we're missing it? Are we willing to see it? Are we willing to then take action on what we see? 
I was thinking when you say that, I'm thinking about how often, um, Lisa, you and I have worked together now for six years. Mm -hmm. Um, and how I've had to learn to not be defensive. Um, because you're good at calling me out on stuff. And if I'm willing to see it, it really moves things in the right direction. But I have to notice my defensiveness. That is my first response. This just happened with a program we launched on Psalms where I was excited about doing Psalms. You were less excited about doing Psalms. (laughs) And you kept pushing into the things you saw that weren't right about it. But you, but for a while you couldn't even name exactly what it was. It was more just that it didn't feel right. And so it took this work to stay open to what didn't feel right about it mm-hmm. and to let my ego down a little bit. Cause my ego wanted to be like, but look at all the hard work that I put in and look at how, <laughs> and you're pretty good at calling out in a way where you were like, You'll say things like, this is good academic work you did, Steph. Like, you can see that you worked hard at this. But like, but to notice, just to notice how my, like, to not respond with defensiveness first, to notice my defensiveness, to say, I am human. Of course, I'm going to get defensive. I don't have to not be defensive. It's that choice of what do I do when I feel that defensiveness? Do I let it pass by or do I grasp onto it and stay there? I, I do wonder, like, when you talk about it like that, then I wonder, like, maybe, I wonder if, like, like, is Boaz like this, like, in all the places? Like, maybe practicing being called out by people who we care and for and are in relationship with makes us better able to, like, handle being called out by people who we are not in proximity with. Because mm-hmm. I think that's where some of the hardest call outs are, where, like, it's the space of, like, well, I don't do that. I'm not that. And like to not have that, but to go, oh, oh, I should think about that. Because I feel like that, like maybe that's part of the things of practicing. Like it's why it's so critical to have people who are in our inner circle who can do that work with us and that we do it with, because then it makes us more likely to receive it in the spaces that also really matter in the blind spots that like my close knit circle might not, we might not see it because we're limited perspective we're limited view um because that's it's never easy to be called out but like boaz doesn't seem to bat an eye like other than being startled which was like a pre-waking up startled it it wasn't even like a conscious startled (laughs) you know it it makes me think of when someone has like a growth mindset versus a, you know, kind of closed mindset. Um, like when you, when, when someone has a truly growth mindset, they are just endlessly curious because they recognize that like, it's never finished. I'm never perfect. I'm, I'm, I just want to learn. I want to understand more deeply. Um, I'm going to lean into the parts that feel off because it's not off, it's just new, or it's just different. And different isn't deficit, it's not wrong, it's, it just is. And, and there's like a, there's almost a, um, a freedom in that, that someone who's closed and fixed and doesn't, and is stubborn, and doesn't have a growth mindset, 
just feels threatened and scared all the time that they're going to be wrong. And that just creates so much more tension. Um, and it creates so much more room to be, you know, destructive and harmful and hurtful. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly thinking about the juxtaposition between my wife and I, I'm much more closed minded and stubborn and she is way more growth mindset. And it drives me up a wall to be around it because I just want to like stop trying to grow. I just want to be good enough. And she's always curious. And it's like, why would you think that? Like, why would you need to read that? Like, who cares? And there's always this room for curiosity. And, and in the best ways, like, there's so much growth as a family because of that mindset. And so I, I, I love seeing that in Boaz. It's cause, it, cause it's more than just like a momentary decision. It, it really comes down to like, what's your orientation and posture towards the world, you know? And, and um, I love that when, when you have power and privilege, part of what comes with that is the choice of how, are, what's your posture and your orientation towards the world going to be. And is it going to be one of growth and curiosity and willingness to be confronted or is it defensiveness and an unwillingness to change? And yeah, Boaz seems to represent something pretty awesome. My heart question that I was, I'm kind of wrestling with or leaning into is about this sort of mix of taking action and sitting back that feels like a hard mix that I tend to not do right. <laughs> um, so it's neither all stopping and resting nor all taking action. Ruth and Naomi figure out they're they're in this place of like, like Ruth goes and she does this foot uncovering and she names the thing that she needs. And then she goes home and she waits for things to and stops. And and that I tend to either be in this place of, well, well, God's gotta do it. There's nothing I can do. Or in this place of it's all on me. And there's a, I feel like there's an invitation to see how both are often what's required. This, that there's this, like, I need to have the confidence to like step in and be vulnerable and take action. And like that, that's even a hard mix. Like she's confident and vulnerable at the same time. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's just a lot of that sort of threading the needle that feels like Ruth gets right, that I feel like I most of the time get wrong or, or not. I don't know, maybe that right and wrong feels like the wrong words, but it just, I get paralyzed more often. Maybe would be the, I get paralyzed towards action or inaction and don't see the mix. Particularly, I think because of the vulnerability required by both, I think that I I just have a high self-protective instinct that um, guards vulnerability quite a bit. And so to have that vulnerability of asking for what I need combined with that vulnerability of waiting is just all vulnerable. <laughs> it feels really, really risky to do and hold both. Well, not only does this conclude part nine of our series on the book of Ruth, but it also ends chapter three. So we got three episodes left in this season and in this study. 
and we are excited to dive into chapter four starting next week. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining us on Searching the Sacred.